This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we're going to talk about uh, infrastructure and indigenous peoples, the ways in which the a constant building and rebuilding of our landscape and the role that uh, infrastructure plays in it, how that affects the lives of uh, indigenous communities of various kinds, how over time uh, the experience of different communities has been changed by the building on our landscape and uh, how that continues to be an issue for us to deal with today as we think about uh, a massive new investment in infrastructure that's going to be coming from the federal government. In some ways, we're long overdue to reinvest in our bridges and our water infrastructure and our energy infrastructure, particularly in a state like Texas. Uh, But what we often don't think about are the effects that those investments in that building has on people who have lived in different areas for many, many, many years. Uh, We're joined by a colleague, friend, and uh, someone who has written extensively on these issues and various other issues related to the history of the West, the environment, and indigenous peoples. Uh, This is my colleague, Professor Erica Basumek. Erica, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, Erica is an associate professor of history at the University of Texas here in Austin. Uh, She's the author of two really fascinating, wonderful books, uh, two very different books, uh, Indian Made, Navajo Culture in the Marketplace on on the consumerization, I guess, of of Indian culture and Indian uh, artwork and crafts in the United States. And her most recent book, the book we'll talk about today, The Foundations of Glen Canyon Dam, Infrastructures of Dispossession on the Colorado Plateau. It's a beautiful book uh, that I really encourage uh, all of our listeners to to read. It it has such insights um, on not just um, history, on engineering and water issues that are, of course, so important uh, to all parts of our democracy. Erica has received numerous teaching awards. I think she's received every possible teaching award from the university, um, most uh, especially the UT Regents Outstanding Teaching Award. And and Erica is, is also just a wonderful colleague. Um, So we're very delighted to have her with us today. Before we turn to our discussion of infrastructure and indigenous peoples, we have, of course, Mr. Zachary's scene-setting poem. Uh, What's the title of your poem today, Zachary? Sonnet on the Shores of Lake Powell. Wow. Let's hear it. Beneath the water, can you hear the voice that begs you all to stop and meet her eyes? No, sir, there are no tears, they are not moist, but cold and steely echoes of her sighs. Hark how perverse the land has disappeared, the footprints all were left to wash away. The ghosts repeat each dream, each fever feared, in each drop I drink, I taste what they say. How to remember the drowned and the sunk, the damned, the dried, they have lived and they live. But with no roots, a tree is just a trunk that stands straight upright, but must sometime give. In the depths of the lake, I see a dark hope. May the mouths of forgetters fill up with soap. (laughs) (laughs) That's great, Zachary. 
<laughs> you have a little surprise there at the end for us, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's your poem about, Zachary? My poem is about uh, how big infrastructure projects, in particular the damming of rivers and the damming of the Colorado River, um, erases uh, so many uh, long-standing communities and makes it very difficult for those communities to uh, maintain their history and their all-important uh, memory. Mm-hmm. Erica, that seems to be one of the main points of your new book, yes? Yes. Um, yeah, certainly erasure, um, indigenous erasure in the region is a big theme. Um, and Zach really hit on something about you know what happens when um, not just communities are drowned, but a kind of culture is submerged um, and, you know, people fail to recognize that it was there. And that's a very conscious effort. That kind of erasure is something that happens through this process called settler colonialism. That is a main theme of the book. And and we'll talk a lot about that that big phrase, settler colonialism. Yeah. Uh, but, but I was really struck, Erica, early in the book, you talk about your own family and the ways in which some of your uh, grandparents and parents' experiences are part of this story, but were also erased in certain ways. Can, can you share that with us? Sure. Um, well, I became interested in the topic of Glen Canyon Dam. I mean, I grew up in Utah, and if you are from Utah, Glen Canyon Dam and Lake Powell were very controversial. Pro, there were people who were really for the dam, and people who were um, <clears throat> aggressively against the construction of Glen Canyon Dam. So it kind of looms large um, in the landscape. And um, I finished my first book um, on Navajo material culture and how a, a whole kind of consumer market around Navajo culture uh, was created by these traders. And I had been interviewing some traders in Page, Arizona, and I called my dad on a research trip and he said, oh, go look at the dam. And when you get to the dam, call me. So I drove from Page across the bridge, you know, so I was facing the dam and called my dad. And he said, that is the first project that you're your grandfather worked on engineering project your grandfather worked on as a refugee from Germany. And that was the first time I had heard that particular family story. And I had been already thinking about um, material culture writ large. So from kind of small scale jewelry rugs, et cetera, to how a material like concrete had transformed the landscape. And then the pieces just kind of began to fall together that maybe I wanted to write a history of the dam and its impact on indigenous people, because there are probably 2000 books on Glen Canyon Dam and very few of them even mention that the dam was built on indigenous land. And then suddenly it was connected to my own family's history and experience in the region. And so that's kind of where I, that was one of the starting places for this new research project. Fantastic. Um, it's always very powerful when a story like this connects to us personally. Uh, and people tend to think that historians were supposed to be completely dispassionate and objective. And of course, that's very far from the truth. We, we focus on evidence. We don't get to make things up. <laughs> but we often have a very strong connection to the topics we write about. Just to situate our listeners who probably, like me, were, were not and are not experts on Glen Canyon Dam. Where is it and, and, and what role does it play in our water and energy infrastructure? Sure. Um, so Glen Canyon Dam, there are two major dams on the Colorado River, Hoover Dam and Glen Canyon Dam. And Glen Canyon Dam is up river from uh, Hoover Dam. It's on the Utah-Arizona border. 
um, right at Page, Arizona. So Page was a city that was built to actually support the construction of the dam. About 40 million people rely on the water and energy from those two dams, from Lake Mead and Lake Powell, the reservoirs of those two dams. Um, it's It was meant to serve, so Lake Mead and Hoover Dam were meant to serve what are called the lower basin states, um, Nevada, California, um, and Glen Canyon Dam was meant to see serve the water irrigation and energy needs of the upper basin states, um, you know, Utah, um, uh, Wyoming, Colorado, uh, etc. So those seven states divided essentially the waters of the Colorado River in 1922. Uh, they get, there was a something called the Colorado River Compact, and divided up the waters how much you know each state would get. Then those b- dams were built. The Hoover, Hoover Dam was built in the 30s. Glen Canyon Dam was built in the 50s um, to meet those water needs. And the one population that was left out of that 1922 compact and subsequent water debates, although now it's becoming more important, are the 31 federally recognized tribes who have treaty rights actually to the Colorado uh, River and the waters of the tributaries in the basin. And and one of the points you make quite eloquently in your book is that uh, these indigenous uh, peoples, they they are part of the foundation uh, for the dam. You write that the engineering foundation has received attention, but that there's below the Navajo sandstone, you say, there's much more of a a social and political story that needs to be told. Why and how were these groups who lived on this land, how were they dispossessed in your terms? Right. That's an excellent question. And that's really the big theme of the book. Um, So I use settler colonialism, which is the idea that settlers Um, are moving onto the landscape with the express intent of removing and displacing the people who are already there. So they are not just coming in to use resources and leave, they're there to stay. Um, And intentionally, they displace Indigenous people and take their resources. So one of the things that settlers do is they look for Indigenous infrastructure, infrastructure that Indigenous people had built, utilized very sophisticated infrastructure, irrigation ditches, et cetera, as key indicators that they could settle there. So the first part of that story is one about engineering. It's one about thinking about Indigenous engineering and using that for the settler's benefit. But the second part is the cultural significance of that landscape to Indigenous people as homelands. So Indigenous people had lived in uh, on the Colorado Plateau for millennia. They had a deep relationship. It is the place of their emergence. The you know it's religiously significant. It's culturally significant. It's politically significant. It was economically significant. So one of the the key points of the book is settlers not only had to remove Indigenous people, they had to attempt to erase the ways in which people made meaning of that landscape. Uh, and you know They don't do it for the Indigenous people. Indigenous people still maintain that meaning of the landscape, but they have to essentially ignore that that landscape belonged to somebody else, that those lands, those waters, the resources, et cetera, were meaningful to other people. Um, and so that's really one of the kind of key points that the book makes. 
And you show at times, especially in your early chapters, that um, oftentimes um, members of different indigenous groups welcome some of this development. Uh, but then, of course, the story changes over time. Can can you fill in some of that for us? Sure. Well, settler colonialism, so the settlement of the American West, as you get lots of people, uh, Anglo-white settlers moving into the American West, they pit indigenous people kind of against each other. And some people are more vulnerable than others. And so some, you know, indigenous people, they're not, you know, they're Indigenous people are used to newcomers. They're used to trading um, with, you know, people moving across their landscape. So there's essentially a kind of misunderstanding about what people want. They don't necessarily understand that these people who are coming in, in the in the case of the book, the Latter Day Saints, with the express intent to stay and displace them and take their resources. So the first interactions say between LDS settlers and Utes and Paiutes um, in Northern Utah and Southern Utah, the two places that I talk a little bit about in the book, more about Southern Utah in the book, they sort of are like, okay, who are these people? Do we want to trade with them? They're bringing in resources um, at a time of they're bringing in cattle, um, they're planting, et cetera. Maybe we want to work with them. They believe essentially that what the um, LDS settlers will do is kind of share those resources with them. The LDS settlers have a completely different viewpoint, which is they are there to permanently settle on those lands and take the land and water from the indigenous people. And once indigenous people sort of realize that, there's conflict, there are uh, armed conflict, sometimes um, violence, uh, attempts to expel the settlers uh, from the landscape. That certainly happens with the Utes, uh, the Southern Utes and the LDS settlers. They push them back um, to Northern Utah. Um, so there's a kind of tension that changes over time once people realize what's happening. But the big thing to consider also is, you know, it doesn't occur the tensions between indigenous people and non-indigenous people does not occur in a kind of vacuum. You know, there's been Spanish settlement, there's been um, American settlement in the regions surrounding Utah for quite some time, especially with, you know, once gold is discovered in California. So there's a lot of pressure being put on indigenous people. They're being pushed as gold is discovered in Colorado to the uh, southwestern Utes are being pushed to the southwestern part of the state of Colorado. They're losing their resources. They're kind of being attacked on all sides, for lack of a better word. And so there's a there are kind of different layers of pressure that Indigenous people are feeling that make the idea of potentially negotiating with different populations um, seem like a smart thing to do for them. How critical was this particular dispossession, uh, the dispossession of indigenous peoples around uh, Glen Canyon Dam and present-day Lake Powell, how critical was this particular disposi uh, dispossession for the eventual settlement of the region? Um, so it happens in – that's an excellent question, Zachary. It happens in layers, and that's one of the key things that I make in – one of the key points I make in the book, that the foundations of Glen Canyon Dam are not just – an engineering foundation where they poured a bunch of concrete. So it was the religious settlement of that region. So the LDS colonization is kind of a key foundation. And then there's a foundation of 
um, scientific exploration, government explorers, surveyors, et cetera, who are attempting to kind of catalog all the resources in that land. Then the engineers come in and they figure out how the, the water could be utilized for the region. So with each successive layer of that foundation, as each successive layer of that foundation gets embedded into the landscape, we begin to see the growth of the white population. All of that is done with the intention of expanding and growing the Anglo or white population in that region. And that becomes the kind of core foundation for dispossessing, removing, pushing off, taking resources of indigenous people um, on that landscape. So each layer um, adds kind of depth and stability to settler colonialism, a foundation of settler colonialism with the express intent of taking indigenous resources. I, I really like that part of your book, Erica, that there isn't uh, a sort of one origin moment. There, there are many origins. Um, and it's also really, really interesting to a non-expert reader like me uh, how so many very well-known figures make cameo or more than cameo appearances, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, Joseph Smith, uh, the leader of the Mormons of the Church of Latter-day Saints, uh, or at least of the, the settlers in, in Utah, is an important character for you. John Wesley Powell, Powell the explorer, and, and scientist and promoter. Um, it, it's interesting how many of these different dynamics cross into your story. Um, and and is, that, is that one of the points you're making? Yeah. I'm, I, I think people have a tendency to think about Powell's exploration of the Colorado River, which was, um, I mean, Powell became incredibly famous for his exploration of the Colorado River. He, you know, navigated almost the entire length of the river. He wrote, you know, he had made maps, wrote about it, um, and he became a kind of iconic explorer figure um, as a result of this. But few people think about how Powell interacted with a leader like Brigham Young, who was also in the region, and the two actually met um a few times on the banks of the Colorado River to discuss um, it. While Powell didn't necessarily respect the Latter-day Saint religion, he respected the LDS settlers as um, kind of civilizers of the region, people who were going to bring industry to the region, farming, agriculture, etc. Um, Powell, however, had very different ideas about how water in the region should be used than politicians from the region, including the Latter-day Saints, um, and even politicians in Congress who had already essentially decided what states should look like and already kind of mapped out the territories, Utah, Arizona, et cetera. And their idea was like, well, we'll just figure out where the water is and bring it to the settlers. And Powell actually had a different idea. He has a fantastic map, which is a map of there should be basin states. So states should be drawn around water tributaries like they were in the east, as opposed to these big square blocks like they are in the west. And so, you know, there was all sorts of, there were all sorts of debates about how water in the West should be used, how people were going to get it. And by the you know mid to late 19th century, it all becomes about, we're just going to engineer our way out of these environmental problems. Sounds similar to today. Yeah, <laughs> yes, very much so. Um, we have a sense, I think, of what this all means for uh, settler colonialism, for uh, settlers coming into Utah and Arizona, two states where where your book begins in the uh, mid to late 19th century. There are not many 
uh, white settlers. And of course, by the 20th century, they're very, very large communities. What does all this mean for the indigenous communities? Right. So indigenous communities, so the whole project maps onto essentially the the larger arc of Native American or indigenous history, which is, you know, it follows the settlement of the region, the internment of the Navajo, the release of the Diné Navajo from that internment, those internment camps in the uh, 1860s. Um, And then the question begins, how are these populations going to coexist? And the Navajo actually you know, rebound, they expand, their population expands from about 8,000 to 30,000 within a, a very short period of time, which means they, they're becoming excellent sheep herders. They're actually using the resources pretty effectively across the plateau. And that creates the sense of white settlers that this population is doing something right, that they could potentially learn from. Um, and more settlers move down into that region. You get explorers, um, like Powell, like um, I talk about Herbert Gregory and E.C. LaRue, who are two um, scientists who are working for the essentially the USGS. Um, Gregory's working for the USGS and LaRue is working for um, LA County and Water. So they're beginning to think about how water in the region is going to be used. And they, um, they look to indigenous people for their knowledge, they mine their knowledge. So indigenous people become um, guides for people like Herbert Gregory. They give him language to describe what he's seeing. And he in turn extracts that knowledge from that population and uses it to dispossess them. And that's a process that happens kind of repeatedly over the course of the book, all the way up until the 1940s and 50s, when the federal government realizes in order to build Glen Canyon Dam, it needs land that belongs to the Navajo Nation. And so they have to engage in a land swap and they make certain promises to the Navajo Nation um, about what it will get in return for um, exchanging one parcel of land, that parcel it needs to build Glen Canyon Dam for another parcel of land in Southern Utah. And the tribe at this point is sort of attempting to, um, the tribal leaders are attempting to help their population, water and electricity, um, getting those things to the reservation would be, were important initiatives for tribal leaders. And so they work with the federal government essentially only to be, only to have their concerns glossed over in a kind of replication of the process again and again. So this time they get the land, the government gets the land, it needs to build the dam, it builds the dam and the Navajo essentially are shortchanged in that in that process. It it does seem like uh, they're not only silenced but victimized in many ways by uh, decision time and again. Is that is that is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I think I mean one of the kind of key opening episodes in the book is um, Raymond Nakai, who is the tribal chairman of the Navajo Nation, um, is invited to the dedication of Glen Canyon Dam. And he writes a speech for it. He's told he's going to get the chance to deliver a speech. And then 
you know, the government officials, the LDS leaders who give the prayer, uh, Lady Bird Johnson is there to dedicate the dam. Everybody goes over, there's allotted speaking (laughs) time. And it's Raymond Nakai who's cut from the program. And that is kind of a nice allegory, I think, or metaphor for what actually happens to Indigenous people, where they're told they're going to get something, the opportunity to have a voice to talk about um, in Nakai's case, why the dam is potentially meaningful for the Navajo Nation. And then, you know, when push comes to shove or when they run out of time and they think the ceremony is going on too long, he's just eliminated or silenced from the program. Yeah, it is so indicative of what seems to happen at every point in, in your in your narrative. Um, you, you do close on an optimistic note, which I appreciated. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you do on this very issue uh, point to at least one moment in the early 21st century when um, the indigenous community or part of it is at least given voice uh, again. Can, can you share that with us and, and, and why that's a model? Yeah. So I end with the narrative of Bears Ears. And Bears Ears, I think it represents a new way of um, the federal government working with tribes and letting tribes lead. So Bears Ears is a national monument in southeastern Utah that um, five tribes, a coalition of five tribes, actually petitioned the federal government to create. And um, Obama, as he was leaving office, actually signed uh, Bears Ears into existence. He he listened to the five tribes. Um, and that was that Bears Ears is really important um, for uh you know, for the residents, the indigenous residents of the region, because it was their idea. It's a recognition a recognition of their presence on the landscape. Uh, they are kind of leading and co-managing the monument with the National Park Service um, in terms of what people can do, how they can do it, um, whose voices are heard. Um, it, it was very controversial. President Trump in almost one of his first actions, signed it out of existence. Biden signed it back into existence. So it's um, a, a place on the landscape where indigenous people are leading the conversation and the federal government is listening to how that landscape should be managed. And as a result of that, I think it is a model for Um, letting indigenous people take the lead and determine what will happen to the lands that are most culturally significant to them and how they could be utilized in terms of management practices. Do you think there's maybe an opportunity to have more conversations like that um, and and maybe to repair some of the the immense damage done to these communities um, and tribes uh, with climate change and the new crisis of water in the West uh, and and the seeming failure of these water systems uh, built decades ago. Yeah, that's an excellent question, and I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, so, water in the West is quickly disappearing. Both Glen Canyon and Lake Mead, um, Lake Powell and Lake Mead, are incredibly low. They might reach what is called Deadpool, which means there's not enough water running through the turbines to actually generate electricity. So it'll be like a stagnant pool of water in those, um, in those lakes. Glen Canyon Dam, Lake Powell is more um, vulnerable to that than Lake Mead right now. Um, In part, 
the way in which the West has grown with this idea that we can continually engineer our way out of um, environmental crisis. So we'll just create bigger dams to generate more hydroelectricity so we can grow populations of places like Phoenix and uh, Tucson, and we can export all that electricity, which cannot be stored, has actually exacerbated and created the conditions that exacerbate climate change. So that this is a very old way of thinking about how we're going to use our resources in the American West. And we need maybe an older way of thinking, which is how indigenous people have thought about and managed their resources, sort of living in balance with the environment, thinking about what is sustainable and what isn't sustainable um, as a as a as we're as a kind of model that we're seeing in Bears Ears to potentially help us think about solutions. So there are all sorts of proposals on the board about how we can import, you know, how we can uh, import more water, desalinization plans, et cetera, just bring more water to the West. And there's a lack of uh, consideration, which is how do we conserve the water that is already there? How do we think about what kind of population can actually be supported? How do we you know, use our, res- our electricity a little more sustainably in the region as opposed to just like, how do we generate more? And I think indigenous people are really at the forefront in leading those conversations and trying to push people um, to rethink about the balance of nature. And these are indigenous scientists, indigenous geographers, uh, indigenous hydrologists who are at the forefront of leading these conversations. It, that's really cool. I mean, that that actually um, being more participatory in the way we plan and build could actually be good for the environment is, is what I hear you saying. Uh, what forums should those conversations take place and how should our listeners participate? How should they help to initiate these conversations? Um, well, I mean, I think just getting people to think about the, especially in the American Southwest, um, that indigenous people need to be part of this conversation and, you know, pressuring government officials who are meeting to, you know, think about a renegotiation of that Colorado River compact. Essentially, the government divided up more water than existed, even in the Colorado River. So now the states are kind of in crisis. Everybody wants their share of water that doesn't exist. Those 31 tribes have not been at that table. And they, um, by treaty rights, uh, actually have um, a claim to a lot of that water. So the first thing that needs to happen, or one of the first thing that needs to happen is tribes need to be at the table having conversations about what's going to happen with the Colorado River and how that water should be managed. And so people really need to be making sure that when these conversations are occurring, uh, there are tribal representatives um, from tribal governments, uh, from uh, the indigenous scientific community who are there who can take part. And, and one final question, Erica, you've shared so much with us uh, from a historical and a policy uh, and an engineering perspective. Um, what do you take as some lessons uh, from this analysis and from this really important story for when you think about um, more local um, infrastructure issues, such as debates in Austin about development in one part of town or another part of town, what, what do you take from this for, for those discussions? Um, that's, that's really interesting. I think um, 
we have a tendency to, there's this idea in um, the history of, of engineering um, of path dependency that we essentially get put on a path by decisions that policymakers made for us 50 or 100 years ago. And it's really hard to to you know change the direction of that path but in many ways we need to be thinking about doing that so we have been put on this path locally about you know which is a path of expansion and growth and um we'll just figure out how to solve these problems about where we're going to get the resources we need at some later date like we'll let the next generation sort of figure that out <laughs> and you know we need to kind of change the direction of that path and begin thinking about the decisions that we're making today, how are they going to impact generations like five or six generations in the future, or at least two or three generations in the future. So instead of, you know, pushing, kicking those decisions down the path <laughs> that people are making today, we need to actually be thinking about and trying to think about the unintended consequences of the decisions that we're making today. That's one thing that people the policymakers, the engineers, the government officials don't really seem to have a good grasp on in, you know, 1900 or 1920 or 1940 or 1960, that the policies they're putting in place and the engineering projects they're putting in place are going to have a whole bunch of unintended consequences. But we know that today and we know better. And so I think planning um, from a design mode that helps us envision multiple futures would be really um, effective. It, it's such a powerful and I think effective point. Um, so many parts of our democracy on a day-to-day -day basis involve discussions in city council and in um, different government agencies, state and federal all across our country over you know whether to put a housing project in one place or another or build a highway in a particular place. And what I hear you saying, Erica, is that part of our democracy should encourage and we should all be part of discussions that ask the kinds of questions you're asking in your book about these projects in our backyards, that that's how our democracy should function. Exactly. Right. Zachary, what do you think? I mean, you follow a lot of these issues. Uh, you care about the environment. I think your generation is much more environmentally conscious than um, the generation that Erica and I were part of when we were your age. Uh, I guess we're still part of that generation of our own. Um, what, does this resonate with you? Do you see many um, useful and persuasive elements to this discussion? I think so. I think we're going to have to have a lot more conversations like this moving forward, um, not just with the water crisis in the West, but with other climate crises uh, around the world, and particularly in the United States. I think there's a real opportunity to work with indigenous communities uh, and also this history of indigenous dispossession uh, in the West uh, to make better policy in the future and also to make sure that our processes are more democratic and, and more fair. Hmm. Hmm. So final question, Erica, building on Zachary's thoughtful comments, are you optimistic? Um, I, I am optimistic. Um, I am a practical optimist where I think, um, you know, Zach, Zach is right. You're right. We really need to be attentive to um, who's at the table when decisions are being made. And I think I am optimistic. You know, I teach a big class at UT. It's called Building America. It is essentially history for engineers. And one of the key points that I make is, you know, engineers are not just building stuff, you know, 
microchips or robots or designing highways, um, they're also essentially, when they're envisioning those projects, becoming policymakers if, if they realize it or not. And so I think we need to have, and I'm really optimistic that young people really seem to get that, that they understand that becoming an engineer um, does mean participating and forming and influencing our society. So I'm optimistic about Zach's generation for sure, about my son's generation, about the our UT students and beyond. I just hope that the older generation, and this is where I'm a little more practical, can begin to listen and open up lines of conversation with groups who have traditionally not had a seat at the policymaking table and not just engineers in this case, indigenous people, some of whom are engineers for sure. Right. Right. Uh, I think that's a, a beautiful point to close on. Uh, I encourage uh, all of our listeners to read Erica's book. It is a beautiful, fascinating, and really eye-opening story. Uh, it also shows the power of focusing upon one one project in the built environment and seeing so many other historical and political vectors that matter for our democracy through the prism of that project. Uh, the book is The Foundations of Glen Canyon Dam, Infrastructures of Dispossession on the Colorado Plateau. And I think today's discussion has reminded us that at the core of our democracy is a thoughtfulness and a conversation about um, how we use our technologies, how we think about the things we build, and how we think about them from multiple points of view, not just from the point of view of the uh, immediate demand for that particular microchip or dam or bridge at that, at that moment. Our democracy is richer and made more um, uh, better for more groups uh, through a discussion of the multiple uses and, and unintended consequences, as Erica put it, of the things we build. Um, Erica, thank you so much for joining us today. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Zachary, thank you for your poem as always. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.